Hello and welcome to Dialogues in Dermatology. I'm Dr. Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. We have another exciting podcast for you today. We hope that you enjoy. From their childhood dreams to the most pivotal moments of their careers, the stories of dermatology's most influential leaders will be revealed through a new series of Dialogues in Dermatology podcasts, Titans of Dermatology. Join us as we explore the personal characteristics, emotions, and messages from dermatologists who have made indelible impacts on the field. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback. Dr. Siegel, thank you so much for joining me. This is the first of my collaboration with the AAD in a new podcast series. For me, this project was born out of introspection during the pandemic and this increased need for connection and sharing history. We are all aware of the scientific side of medicine, but I find that the human side is just as interesting, if not more so. And this is a chance for us to really explore that and get to know the people whose textbooks we've read, whose lectures we've attended, whose training programs we've interviewed at, and to really get to know who these people are as people and hear their stories. So you are a fitting person for our first discussion. You, Dr. Dan Siegel, epitomize what it means to be a Renaissance man. You're a physician, teacher, advocate, scientist, innovator, among many other things. I'm going to give a quick introduction to our audience. Dr. Siegel graduated from Albany Medical College. He attended residency at UT Southwestern in Dallas, did a Mohs Fellowship at Baylor, stayed on in Texas at UT Southwestern in Dallas to create the Mohs Division, and then left back to the Northeast. From there, took a short stint in Vermont, which I'd love to hear more about. And then after that, you were up at Stony Brook, where you ran the Mohs Division and fellowship program, and then currently are at SUNY Downstate and in private practice. So with that very brief introduction, I know you've been introduced thousands of times, but I'd actually like to hear from you. If you were to introduce yourself, how would you best do so? Well, actually, I'll give you a small correction on that. I'm no longer in private practice. In June of 18, I left private practice, which actually has an interesting tale behind it. I think it's a relevant tale in the era when there's this polarization between who people are employed by. Yes. I had founded a practice with two former fellows back in 2005. And in 2012, we joined a large multi-specialty group. And the reason to join was very straightforward. We, as a three-person group, had very little market power. And we were receiving 60 to 80% of Medicare from most payers. And the opportunity came along to join this large group that was wooing us and had successfully wooed one of my partner's father's ENT group about two years before. So we had a bit of a roadmap to work with. And essentially overnight, we went to significantly better reimbursement. And it was a pretty good run for a couple of years. And then in 2016, the management company was bought out by Optum, which is the venture capital equity arm of United Healthcare. Right. And things changed. The original medical director passed away of pancreatic cancer. Uh, the head of the company became sort of marginalized by the corporate leadership. Uh, the medical director came on board, an interesting fellow named Elliot Pellman, mm-hmm. who famously was played by Paul Reiser in the movie Concussion. I need not say more about that. And suddenly it wasn't as much fun as it once was. 
Right. Uh, you know, they, they, the corporatization of medicine was a bit of a concern there. And that unlike many of the private equity companies in Durham that do allow, and again, disclosure, I now have a part-time job doing compliance for skin and cancer in Florida. But one of the things is this group in New York wanted to tell us who we could refer to, where we could order lab tests, where we could send our pathology to. And it came down in a corporate missive in February, a couple of months before I decided it was time to leave, that one could be censured, suspended, or terminated for failing to follow these policies. Wow. So essentially, by instead of having a patient go, let's say, to a plastic surgeon who I've worked with for 20 years, who's a mile from the patient's home, I was to send the patient, albeit to technically a humanely lovely person, the patient was expected to drive two hours to see this person or instead of going to be imaged, instead of going across the street for a CT or a PET, they should go to the corporate imaging center 40 minutes away. And there were other issues. Right. So I made a very happy decision and the Brooklyn VA said, oh, gee, now you can give us that second day a week we've been asking you for <laughs> for years. So I'm doing that and just I'm enjoying life. And as my mother said to my wife not long ago, how does it feel having me retired? And my wife's comment was, he's not retired. He's just doing different things, which has been sort of one of the themes of my life. Mm -hmm. um, I sort of follow what looks interesting at the time. Paul Bergstresser, who was my chair when I was, well, Jim Gilliam was my first chair as resident. And when Jim passed away, Paul was chair. And Paul at one point pointed out to me how I would never be a serious scientist, which I never argue with and have never become a truly serious scientist. And his reasoning was that I wasn't willing to focus down on sort of one receptor site to spend my career examining, that I just seemed to go to whatever interests me, which I've always felt has kept me stimulated. And I'm sitting here gray haired, I say, keep me young, but it's been fun and interesting ride. Absolutely. So to that end, I want to go back to you grew up and again, correct me where I misspeak. You grew up in New York City. Yes. You attended Stuyvesant High School which to our listeners who aren't aware, this is a New York public school with a entrance exam and it's a known for creating some of the brightest minds in science, the arts, mathematics, there are Nobel laureates, famous actors, famous physicians. So you knew, you must've known from a young age, you had an interest in science. What did that look like? I had probably, as you probably did and most of the listeners, I had a chemistry set, which I expanded upon tremendously in my basement. I was always the kid who, was never prime on someone's list to choose for a baseball game because I'd get distracted by what was going on in the grass, not on the field. <laughs> you know, the, the movements of the bugs and little creatures and stuff and plants was more interesting to me than the game itself was, which persists to this day. By the way, you know, when you speak of Stuyvesant, I mean, Jerry Lazarus, one of the well-known members of our field, former chair at Penn and a dean, I believe, at Davis and chair there, is another Stuygrad. There are many of us out there. And certain other graduates of there are other specialized high schools in New York City. Mm -hmm. So, for instance, it's it's a lot of fun when I run into Lowell Goldsmith, and Lowell is a Brooklyn Tech grad. He, and my right. brother-in-law, went to school together there. And Mark Lebwall and Alice Gottlieb were Bronx science grads. But I always remind them which is the best of the three schools, <laughs> which is where Eric Lander, who is the Whitehead professor at MIT, who spoke at our AED plenary a number of years ago. He was the captain of the math team when I was, you know, he was a year ahead of me. But of course, I always think people like, if I'm writing tall, Eric is about three lunar orbits way above in terms of brilliance. 
And <laughs> I always say I was the dumb one. I was the number five starter on the math team my senior year. <laughs> I was the dumb one on the team. Well, that's very impressive. So now, did you look at Brooklyn Tech? Were you able to test into those schools or was it borough specific? Oh, no, no. This, this was testing. And this, this was unlike what you hear in the news today about the desire to make the test more dummy down for certain groups. This was purely numbers. It was a test that tested math, science, logic, and reasoning. And it was, you know, you take this when you're in eighth grade. Okay. It was one of those things that the score you got determined whether you got in or not. And you, I only applied to Stuyvesant because Brooklyn Tech wasn't in a great neighborhood and it was kind of big and there were no girls there. And Bronx <laughs> Science would have taken my two-hour commute and probably upped it to close to three hours each way. But of course, you know, which sounds horrible commuting, but when you realize on the way in, you get to read the New York Times and do the crossword puzzle or finish homework you didn't get around to. And on the way home, you try to do the homework that you have to do from that day so you don't do it on the train the next morning. Right, so commute's kind of a bonus to the... Well, the, the commute was a bonus. And in fact, even the high school test process was interesting. I always say I'm not brilliant. Math and physics have always been easy for me. Mm-hmm. And they took, for a couple of years, the people who were the high scorers and put them into one homeroom as part of an experiment. And the goal was to turn out serious scientists. Eric Lander was one of those. Francis Barani was one of those. And uh, Paul Zeitz, who was one of my classmates, was one of those. A lot of major names, people who have accomplished themselves in science. But many of us were considered by the gentleman who created the program, Abe Baumel, who was the physics chair. Who was, he and his brother actually played a role in putting the City College six-year med program together. It was sort of a failed program because the great majority of people turned out to be clinicians and lawyers. And, you know, not serious scientists, which they'd hoped to create. But it it was a lot of fun. And I always say, when we look at applicants for residency, I tend to give extra points to the Stuyvesant grads because I know they can do the work. I know they will get it done. And most of the current generation are a lot smarter than we were back then. I guess some things are evolving rapidly. It was a great time. That was just, to me, it was the high point of my formal education. And it was probably the most rigorous. You know, think about college. 21 credits means you're taking 21 hours of class. Whereas, you know, high school math team practice was eight in the morning. You had class from nine to three with a 45 minute lunch break. And then there's after school stuff. That was five days a week. So high school was the serious part of things. Absolutely, Carla. And speaking of college, you did a combined undergrad and medical degree, correct? That's correct. And how did you decide to take that leap at 18 that you were going to become a physician? Well, you know, this old joke about you know, growing up in a Jewish family and as you're coming down the birth canal, the grandparents are saying, look, look, the doctor's being delivered. <laughs> so there was a push to choose medicine, even though there were no physicians in the family. Mm-hmm. I did have an uncle I was very close with who was a biochemistry professor, at, actually downstate where I am now. Mm-hmm. And I used to get all of his older textbooks to read. So I, I sort of started enjoying doing that at an early age. Absolutely. At the time when I was in high school, you would hear the tales of the really smart kid down the street who had to go to Italy or Mexico to get an MD degree. They couldn't get into the States. In New York, the numbers at the time were one in 15 applicants. Nationally, it was about one in seven or eight. And the six-year program seemed like a nice way to sort of guarantee getting into medical school. Of course, you do face up to the fact that some people look askance at little children, you know, sucking their thumbs, going into (laughs) medical school after two years. But the rigor was not, you know, I didn't find it, especially after high school, it was still less work than I was putting in in high school for those two years of college. 
Right. And one cousin who was a professor at Penn used to, until she passed away, would yank my chain about not getting a real liberal arts education. And I pointed out that I still did my best to keep up on reading and doing other things. It just wasn't in the confines of the classroom. But it was a lot of fun. And interestingly, in my class, we had a, for a small school that had a small division, a two-person division of Durham, we had a number of people go into Durham. Uh, my predecessor's president and my long-term good friend, Ron Moy, we were together in that program. And in our med school, we had Jeffrey Ainspan, Mitch Singer, one of the Lorenc brothers. I'm trying to remember everybody. And then a couple of years later, one of my classmates, Dan McAuliffe, came down after leaving the military to Southwestern to do a postdoc. He helped clone the road gene and then did a Durham residency. So we had five or six, I hope I'm not missing anybody in the class who became dermatologists. So we had a good run. And I thank the two people teaching at Albany were Lee Lumpkin Sr. and Judy Mislaborski. Lee passed away years ago, unfortunately, he had a car accident. His son still practices. And Judy, who just retired a few years ago, she was kind of my mentor and hero and role model. So I had a lot of fun. I have to admit, my parents, when I said I was going to be a dermatologist, said, you know, what's that? Because I'd never seen a dermatologist. Got my retin-A from the family doc. But I just realized when seeing the lectures that here are these people who seem to be having fun. Mm. You sit through all your lectures and there's the hematologist who are, they're, they're, they're always looking sad. They're always looking unhappy and tired. Mm-hmm. And here come these two derms, and they're having fun. And you know, they would show pictures, and I would look at the pictures in the next lecture. I'd say, gee, that looks like what you call this. And it was, and I said, gee, I've, you know, I could make a career of this. Now, how did you end up then going to Texas? And what was it like being a New York City kid moving to Texas in the 1980s? I had a wonderful time. When I grew up, it seemed that the snows were deeper and more often in the winter in New York. My mother still has photos of where we lived in Middle Village across from a park of snowdrifts and sanitation trucks stuck in the snowdrifts, so it's supposed to be plowing. Mm-hmm. And after going to college at Troy, New York, and medical school in Albany, where the winters were just as much fun, if not more so, I thought it would be nice to train somewhere where it didn't snow all the time. So with a few exceptions, I applied around a few places in the Northeast at the behest of some of my faculty teachers. But for the most part, I applied south of the Mason-Dixon line, and I fell in love with Southwestern when I interviewed there. You know, so many different places, and I will not disparage any places, but certain places you show up for interviews, and the residents are all wearing suits and ties. And I thought, I'd ask one at lunch one time, I said, you guys have a meeting tonight. And the response was no. I said, how come you have a suit and tie? That's what we always wear. Uh-huh. And that wasn't me. You know, I went from jeans and T-shirts, sweatshirts or flannel shirts, depending on the weather, in high yeah. school, to the same wardrobe in college, to, you know, medical schools had loosened the old pictures and anatomy labs of people in suits. That wasn't the case. And suddenly residency, I knew I had to be dressed up for the interviews. But my God, to dress like that every day. And here in Texas, in a couple of places in Texas, you know, people had cowboy boots and string ties on. I said, wow, I could have fun here. And (laughs) the Parkland milieu just totally blew me away in that it seemed like this high volume, chaotic, frenetic place. And I said, I'll have fun here. And I did. I mean, yes, there are times that can be difficult and tough. In fact, I was the first year of the match. Wow. For those who are looking at their experience with the match, they were still working the details out. So the interview process, because that first year was odd and many slots had been given away. I started interviewing in third year of med school. My last interviews were during my internship 
And I didn't find out until October of the internship where I had matched, which definitely took a bleak autumn day in a CCU to cheer me up when I got a phone call from, again, from Paul Bergstrasser saying, we're looking forward to seeing you on July 1st. No kidding. So I got my first choice in in the first match. Wow. Very nice because my second choice, the chair who was chair at the time at Emory, Henry Jones, left shortly thereafter that. So there were a lot of changes on the things down my list. But Southwest was a a solid place. And just it was a wonderful place to train. You you had a lot of responsibility. You were expected to be self-motivated and I had a wonderful time, and I had the privilege of not only working with really great faculty members training me, oh, Jim Gilliam, Paul Bergstresser, Mike Tharp, Bob Tegelar, but I also had the benefit of having some wonderful co-residents. Certain people, uh, my first day of my residency, I met this cute little girl who was pregnant working in Mike Tharp's lab doing research. Mm-hmm. That's Lisa Garner, who is AAD Vice President, Women's Durham President, I was, I was Lisa's chief resident two years later. Incredible. During my chief residency, we interview applicants as chief resident. And one of the applicants who came through was this big, burly football player dude from Ohio who had gone to Wabash and was finishing medicine residency in Cincinnati. And we bonded over the interview. And I said, hey, you know, I'm doing a fellowship and probably coming back here afterward. We could hang out a lot together. That was Brett Coldiron. Incredible. So there's a lot of great people. Shido Cruz has become the great educator. I was his chief resident. He was Lisa's year. No, you know, and just a bunch of really good and bright people to work with. So it was a lot of fun. We had a good time. I mean, some people don't think of certain things as good times. Like, you know, our clinical conference was, we used to sort of joke about it. In fact, as residents, we all bought a birthday gift for Jim Gilliam, which he was not amused by my first year. It was a coffee cup with his name on it and 10 feet of motorcycle chain. (laughs) Our our clinical conference, it was not meant to be a relaxing experience, but it was fun. You know, just the stimulation. It was always something going on. You you were being pushed to your limits and I had a good time with that. Absolutely. And I imagine you bring that to your residents now, that same sense of the uniqueness of training and pushing yourself and using that time to find joy and grow and make those relationships because you are testament that down the line, these are the people that we're going to continue to cherish in our field. Well, I try, I consider myself to be a good talent spotter in many of the things I've done over the years. And I speak, you know, certain people like, and people say, oh, you're a Mohs surgeon. So therefore all the people you've helped are probably Mohs surgeon. I say, no, I, I point out people like in New England, Daniela Krasinski was one of our residents. She's and, excellent. You know, and she, in fact, I got a, a little bit of grief the first time she came back to lecture at Downstate after finishing her residency. I was the senior most person there that day. And I introduced her and I ended my intro by saying that if we had cloning technology, we'd never have to interview again. We would have just cloned Daniela. <laughs> But of course, a couple of people in the room were offended with that, you know, that I implied she was better than them. And it was actually explicit that she was better than almost everybody. But you know, Ashmar Goob is a dear friend and a former resident. So a lot of folks, and you know, I look at the Ruck team, which I led yeah. for many years for, for the specialty. Now is led, Scott Collins is the Ruck member. Molly McCormick, another fellow New Englander of yours, is the yes. Ruck alternate. I say one reason we've been successful is I pride myself on having gotten really smart people. I always think of people smarter than I am engaged and kept them engaged. Because we have, again, another New Englander, Howard Rogers is in there. 
Absolutely. The AD President-elect Mark Kaufman's one of the core team. Alex Flam, who's one of my downstate residents. And my residents probably get more about payment policy than many of the residents do. And Alex expressed interest, and I bombarded her with a bunch of literature on exciting topics like IWPUT, which you probably never heard of. No. That's the intensity of work per unit time. Because when you have a procedure and you're doing something, well, how do you value that compared to something else, high or low? And how do you kind of quantify it? So what you do is subtract out all the pre-work, which has standardized time and intensity, all the post-work. So the intra-service, skin to skin, scalpel to skin versus last stitch, that's Mm -hmm. the intra-service work, and you divide that by time. So if there's three different ways to set a bone, you can kind of get a sense of what the specially presenting is realistic versus complexity by -hmm. looking at intensity work. The highest intensity of anything in medicine is the acute tracheostomy that's emergent. You know, somebody, you're sitting at a restaurant, they keel over to the floor, yep. Heimlich doesn't work, so you take your pocket knife, and the moment your knife hits the trachea, that's the skin, the right. procedure starts, intensity goes sky high, and when you've got the big pen inside, that's the end of the procedure. Right. So that emergency trach is easy to find, and everything has a lower intensity. Okay. But you know, getting to that can be interesting and intriguing. Alex took to these papers and she said, gee, this is interesting. I'd like more. And you know, now she's a core member of the team and a valuable part of it. We've got a bunch of people, and I'm proud to say, you no, know, diversity is a big thing. We've got mm-hmm. women, men, we've got a good Michael Bigby was a long-term team member. Michael's kind of emeritus, but still puts his two cents in when he needs to, in which we welcome that. Absolutely. In fact, we have an approach in there that is different in many ways than many committees people serve on. This is, again, an advertisement for those of you who are out there who are saying, gee, I wonder if I could get involved. And if you happen to be a bean counter and you're the kind of person who looks at a big spreadsheet array and says, oh, this is interesting, give me a call. One of the things we do is our internal team, we don't want to pat each other on the back, but rather if you wake up in the middle of the night because you've got reflux and you have this bad dream about something that could happen to us in the payment arena, You post an email of what you see as the problem and what you would do to solve it. And then everyone else piles on to pick out the flaws in the arguments and refine it. Because these sorts of nightmares, those of us who do this get, you know, it's not like they just come out of nowhere, but there's usually something subconscious welling up and it's coming and we try to work it out in advance. So it's always very appropriate. No one ever attacks anyone, but rather they attack the idea but you can't say that's a bad idea. You have to say it's a bad idea because, and this is what I would do. And we have these marvelous strategy discussions that when something comes up at a meeting, they go on literally, could be hundreds of communications within minutes. Normally it's just, it's a few dozen a day and certain threads go on for months to years because you know it's coming and you want to be prepared when it does. So it it makes life interesting. It's one of those, you know, protect the specialty. In fact, one thing to, as a call out, you know, the, all the team members, I mentioned some so far, you know, we've got Alina Bridges and Ryan Hick from the Durham Path side. Rent Moody is our practice expense guru. And we've got great staff to work with. One of the things that's important is everybody's dedicated. They put the time in, they put the effort in. And in that room, the divisions that sometimes exist between subspecialty groups, butting heads, there's mm-hmm. none of that in mm-hmm. the room with dermatology. Right. Even though everyone has a role where they officially represent a different society, 
right. with a seat in the House of Delegates of the AMA. We're all Durham because nothing can bring more joy to our hearts than watching a battle while the clock is running and two endocrinologists are butting heads at the head of the table. That we always like to say in the process, it is far better to be at lunch than on the menu. And yeah. when the clock is running and we're not on the buffet, that's a good thing. <laughs> Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Now, to that end, you know, you've brought up all these different arenas in which you are involved. They're extraordinarily varied. You have done work with EB, epidermal lysis villosa. You have done work with the Latvian Dermatologic Society. How do you bridge all these gaps? Oh, well, I, I kind of walk into or fall into things over time. So it just piques my curiosity. I mean, the, right. the EB work, when I got to Stony Brook, I wound up taking care of a number of late stage RDEB patients mm-hmm. with squamous cell cancers, one of whom was a spokesperson for Deborah at the time. Mm-hmm. And I wound up on their scientific advisory board. And when I moved my loyalty to downstate from Stony Brook, Alan Shalita, who was on the board, I think chairman at one point of the Deborah board, may he rest in peace, he kind of pushed me onto the board there. So I wound up involved and engaged in that for a long time. Latvia was the result of the Soviet Union falling apart and my having recently finished a master's degree in management. And so I wrote letters to the ministers of health of every country that had left the Soviet axis, offering assistance in helping set up a Western health system. I only got one response. That was Professor Andres Rubens from Riga. And I met Andres and all of his residents at the World Congress in New York in 92. And it was just interesting times then. We had a lot of fun and we're still close. I've been there a number of times, have done surgical workshops. In fact, even the surgical workshop where my mentor, who I did my fellowship with Lenny Goldberg, went along because his family on its way to the U.S. made it, it came through, South, you know, spent a century in South Africa. And Lenny wanted to track down the old family you know, whereabouts. And so we, we did a surgical workshop. And the first day, there was a lot of trepidation because we did this in an OR. The nurses had great trepidation. We learned certain things that I had never seen before, such as gloves we normally flick into the garbage after you know, I grab all the junk on the tray, roll it in. And well, the nurses didn't, they wanted to gently take the gloves off so they could clean them and reuse them. Wow. And the first day, we had you know, a handful of cases. And then Andres said to me, we're going to have a much busier day because all the nurses who have been working with us the whole day, they want to bring family members in to have things done. And we, we, had, we had a good time there and we got surgery rolling in Latvia. Wow. So Latvia kind of came into the Western sphere then to a great extent. Incredible. And what was it like training in Mohs surgery in sort of the earlier years of the specialty and working with Dr. Goldberg? How did you know you wanted to go into Mohs? Well, First, I always say that, you know, I always say to Leonard, I definitely wasn't his most attractive or his brightest fellow, but I'll always be his first. When I started my residency, I was going to be a lupus doctor. That was one of the appeals of Southwestern. I thought I was going to be an immunodermatologist. And again, surgery in medical school had its ups and downs. Certain of the sort of the stereotypical surgical attending behaviors were reality back then. And mm-hmm. here I am with the people who taught me, Forrest Brown, Ron Davis, J.D. Smith, David Alkek. These are the guys who would do the surgical training. And they were all fun guys. They all did, did things differently. But again, I said, gosh, you know, they're doing surgery and they're not living in the hospital. They're not getting up at two in the morning for emergencies, but they're doing beautiful work with beautiful outcomes. Mm-hmm. And it got me more and more engaged and I sort of changed my career focus 
much to the dismay of some of those in the department who were serious immunodermatologists. Right. And I, I had a wonderful time. And again, training in Texas back in the 80s, it was the sort of place where many patients, to use a common term, crawled out from under a rock. Mm-hmm. So the sorts of tumors that we see less and less of now, you know, the, the, the honkers where half of someone's face is involved and the nose is gone and the ears gone, you know, when you make their acquaintance, there were a lot more of those. Parkland training combined with the training with Lenny at Baylor, you know, you develop the attitude that you really can do anything. Yeah, right. So there's that spirit of innovation much more so because you don't have a choice. Oh, well, and you know, just it's other interests of mine like computers. I always say that, and Lenny Goldberg, if you're listening, Lenny, he's heard this story that I would let Lenny operate on myself or any friend or family member with no hesitation. Mm-hmm. But would I trust Lenny to pick up a quart of milk or pick up a newspaper or mail a letter? Nah, he doesn't do that stuff real well. <laughs> and we would spend times where he would remember on Thursday afternoon, he'd get a phone call that he's doing ophthalmology grand rounds the next morning. Mm-hmm. So we would go after seeing patients. So seven at night, we would start going through drawers of Kodachrome slides, pulling out slides. And I remember thinking, you know, there's got to be a better way to organize this. So mm-hmm. one of the things I did as soon as I went back to Dallas is I started working, realized it was beyond my coding abilities to do this efficiently, work with a programmer and put together a program called PatTrack or Patient Tracking System mm-hmm. that was a very nice, it was basically compiled basic, very simple programming language. It was all text interface for those who remember DOS. Mm-hmm. And I would just run the batch file. And then on the day I would see a patient consult, we collect certain demographics and certain you know, other characteristics. We had one of those anatomic charts from NYU with the numbered body parts on the wall everywhere. Mm-hmm. And at the end of the day for Mo's, I would just bring up the patient I would basically plunk in values. Think of sort of a tree structure where go to loop. If positive, go to loop and loop until not positive. And then the tree would go second intention healing, different dressings, linear repair, simple intermediate complex, graph mm-hmm. would be full of split. And it would just take a few seconds and I hit a button and out would come fanfold paper, a Mo's op note, a referral letter, and what looked like a bunch of CPT codes scattered on a page that would superimpose on a 3M transparency of the institutional approved super bill at the time. Wow. And what I did with, as far as Lenny fits into this is that I noticed when I was with Lenny, I spent a couple of days in New York when my wife had a conference. So I visited Perry Robbins and I noticed Perry's walls were covered with plaques from his former fellows thanking him for training them. Wow. So what Leonard got about six months after I finished was when I went down to Houston for a day and he would turn on his computer, up would come a thank you for training me screen, followed by a free copy of patient tracking software that he used for about two decades. Wow. Far more useful than a plaque. Absolutely right. Oh, that's incredible. I mean, you essentially created a first electronic. Oh, yeah, the first EMR. So people often say, well, when did you get the EMR bug? I can say, you know, it was 1986. (laughs) So I've been playing with that a long time. Incredible. And so your work with companies like DermTech, how did you find yourself in industry? Well, what wound up happening is industry often wants to look at how you get paid for what they do. And, you know, drug companies are straightforward. You get a drug, the FDA clears the drug, you sell the drug. But devices are a little different. And it turned out that I seem to have a bit of a knack navigating that. Actually, my first relationship with industry or interaction in any big way was the early 2000s 
when a couple of companies were going to come forward with lasers for psoriasis. Hmm. And this was shortly after PDT was approved. And the early days of PDT, DUSA owned product. They licensed it to Burlex, which was the U.S. armor sharing AG. And Burlex tried to bring it to market and navigate the Ruck and CPT process with marketing people. Hmm. You know, that, I guess that's kind of like taking somebody who can drive a car and putting them in a sailboat in the middle of the Pacific and saying, fine, Hawaii. So that, as you may remember, you know, PDT, it didn't pay fairly for a long time. But having seen that debacle, when it came time for the lasers, I remember having a conference call, the staff, I I think it was Diane Kirimaro at that point. It was Diane or Norma had just come on, but got a phone call together and all the manufacturers said, look, guys, we don't want what happened with PDT to happen to your technology. So let's decide first, do we want to think of like per plaque, like AKs, or do we want to think of regions like the port wine codes? Mm -hmm. And I suggested the latter. The company's all bought in. A couple of people on the call, their lawyers wanted to speak up. I said, no, this is not a lawyer call. There's no antitrust. This is an AAD call because you can't have your own company product specific CPT code. We're going to get a set of codes. So everybody, you know, do you agree with the following statement? You know, I have a flashlight that treats psoriasis, yes or no. If yes, we go forward. If no, you can hang up on the call because we need to do this so it goes through. Mm-hmm. And then we asked for identification of somebody who knew the technology but didn't have a conflict mm-hmm. because apparently the person who had invented the blue light or had a financial role with it was a presenter. It created some turbulence. So one of the companies identified Larry Green. In fact, that was Larry's first foray into AAD politics and activity. And in fact, when Larry has been testified a number of times at Ruck, and Larry holds a distinction of being one of the few people who has done a Ruck presentation and actually had the committee push more RVUs on than we requested wow. because he he convinced them so thoroughly. But yeah. I sort of wound up, you know, in that, and you know, so others would contact me, and it sort of came out, you know, somebody who sort of understands the process and. And I always say that, you know, if you think you really understand it, you know, either you, you're not taking your medication, but I have a bit more knowledge than many on that. So I've you know, worked with companies like Dermtech. Is everybody would love to have a code. But one of the things that the RUC team, everyone on the team really is very good at, is we can appraise. If you tell us what you do, in other words, what the physician does as part of the procedure, we're pretty good at telling you what that is worth. Yeah. And, you know, we can pretty much say what it potentially could be worth as high end, low end, and likely output outcome. And sometimes it's, you know, a code is not the best thing. I mean, take Botox for hyperhidrosis. That was probably not the best of ways to go to try and get codes for that because people doing it as an uncovered procedure were very happy with what they were charging and getting paid. And, you know, that's something people have to be aware of that a code doesn't mean success. The code just means that there's an easier target for payers to, and again, as we've seen with other things, with PDT, with laser psoriasis, with confocal microscopy, mm-hmm. it takes time to get all the payers to agree to pay, even if it's you know scientific state-of-the-art technology that has been FDA cleared, it still is not an easy uphill battle. And sometimes having a code, especially for something that crosses the border between aesthetic and necessary may not be valuable. Or it could be the greatest thing since sliced bread, but it's not a lot of work. Now, I always say that as an example, if, if someone had a pill that you could give to someone with an advanced adenocarcinoma, regardless of the tumor type, 
they would take the pill and they'd have a one hour risk of anaphylaxis, but then you'd cure the cancer. Mm-hmm. The doc who prescribes the pill, he would be paid for sort of, you know, intensive care standby for that hour, but the pharma company might get a million dollars for the pill. What we get paid is based on this relative value system, which for better or for worse is what we've got. You know, people often say, do I think it's great? And, you know, the RUC process is not a great process, but I think it's a very good process and that it brings the entirety of the house of medicine to the table and everybody in the house of medicine gets a voice and the AMA is the table, CMS is the table. So it's a process where things happen and things get done. I mean, and if you went around, everybody who's ever been in the room or at the table, everyone would say what they would do to make it better. And many of the suggestions are very good ones. And the reality is that, you know, we work in the constraints that CMS, essentially Congress put on CMS and CMS put on the AMA. But within those constraints, you have a process that does work. And we come to results that a majority of the House of Medicine can accept. I mean, it's contentious. It's a pitched battles. But again, unlike the U.S. Congress, most people in that room, at the end of the day, you can wind up at dinner with almost anybody in the room in a cordial manner. So do you find that right after those sessions, the different specialties, they're people feel fairly good about what they've gained and, and how they've advocated for the each special. Well, you know, unfortunately it's become a zero sum game really since about 2000 and, you know, our forays into South Asia, mm-hmm. but money that gets removed from a code tends to go back into the general budget. Right, but again, right. people feel you know, they're doing their work that they're trying to get basically a version of truth that the majority can agree to, mm-hmm. but there's not really personal animosity, which is the nice part of it. And that the person who has made your life miserable, you can sit down and discuss travel or sports or literature with them at a pleasant dinner. I mean, that's one of the things that it's civil after. But over the years, the whole team has many friendships we've developed with different people, different specialties, people you actually look forward to seeing and dining with. And some you know, friendships have blossomed outside of the rock process. And that's all been very good because, again, it's a process that works and you have a feeling that what you're doing is making a difference. I guess one of the appeals, if you tend to be competitive, is that you get a report card. You get a proposed rule and a final rule, which actually tells how you've done. You get a report card. Either your specialty is up or down. It may not be very well explained as to the why for the casual reader. But it's something you look at. We did our job. We protected the specialty as best as we could. And and we we keep trying to do that. Right. Absolutely. It's such important work. And I think younger residents hearing how it's never too early to get involved in advocacy and seeing what you guys do on the ground for our specialty is so, so important. Well, I think one of the important points for the youngsters listening is that the AAD, I always call it the mothership of the specialty. Right. And in many ways, it truly was years ago when many of the other societies sort of had their headquarters, the desk at the AAD, you know, right. the most college, the ASDS. But the important thing is that is kind of mothership handles many of these activities. Mm-hmm. And it's been fortunate. Many of us have worked to make sure that other societies that do advocacy, they do it in basically a supportive way. You don't want to recreate the wheel. You know, the most college has very good oversight on what's going on pretty much in every committee meeting in Congress where we might come up. And it turns out it's many of the same people in each society who are engaged. Mm -hmm. So there's very little issue with working and cooperatively on that. But the important point is that 
for some younger people think the AAD is this big entity out there, which is not really true. The AAD is us. Mm-hmm. And although we have marvelous staff members, I know in the payment arena, we have, I would say we probably got the best staff out there, bar none. But in that payment arena, when it comes to being at the table, that's not a staff job, that's a physician volunteer job. When it comes to visiting a congressman, you may be accompanied by a staff member at some point, depending on what you're doing, or you'll be trained by a staff member, but they don't want to see the staff member. The congressman wants to see you, their constituent. So you are the AAD. You know, when people say, why doesn't the AAD do something? Well, it's not a matter of the AAD. When a crisis comes up in a state, AAD staff are on the phone. Like who from among people who do RUC, CPT, someone the GAP Council, can go to a particular state to testify about something you know, at nine o'clock the next morning. I mean, that's the sort of stuff the staff do, but it's the docs who actually are doing the volunteer work. So the younger people think that someone's going to do it for them. Well, it's kind of like parenting. You know, we're parenting you now, but we'd like to get you all engaged. No one who wants to get engaged is going to get turned away. And if it turns out you show up and you do what's asked of you, you can advance. Right, right. Speaking of your work with the AAD, I was still in training at the time, but your plenary speaker, Paul Stamets, was supposed to be one of the most excellent plenary lectures of all time. I think the best, but I'm biased. Now, yeah. Paul, and Paul is a dear friend. Paul is a wonderful human being. If you Google his name, you'll find he's done a lot of TED Talks. He's right. also come up with a way to save the bees, among other things. Right. He has books he's written on mycoremediation. As many fungi are very good at picking up heavy metals, and you can float rafts of straw impregnated with mycelium mm-hmm. on toxic waste sites and pull up all the cadmium and mercury. Now, Paul's wonderful. That process, the SAC, the Scientific Affairs Committee, you know, puts the committee meeting together. And I had felt at that point in my life, after having been to, I missed one academy since my first year of residency, we didn't go, but I've been attending since fourth year of med school. Mm-hmm. And many of the plenary speakers turned out to be political commentator types like Jim Carville and Mary Madeline or various sports heroes. And I thought, wouldn't it be fun to have one of my counterculture friends mm-hmm. who is highly entertaining and brilliant. And when I mentioned his name in the room, I, people started Googling and some people said, we can't have this guy. And other people said, we probably can't afford this guy. And I said, well, can't have as a non-starter since you know, I'm supposed to have a major say in this. Okay. And he will keep people in their seats. They won't go wandering to the exhibits because Paul is amazingly entertaining, which he was. You know, he showed up with his giant agaricon specimen Mm-hmm. which is a medicinally active mushroom found in old growth pine type forests, birch forests, wearing his hat made from pounded mushroom into fiber. Okay. And, and the lecture was wonderful. Just Paul's a great guy. And just, it was a happy moment. I think one of the first people to rush up to the stage to chat with him after it was Phil Frost. So it was really good. We, we had somebody who, who spoke about both science and many other things, not a derm, but somebody who is out there and is brilliant and is entertaining, which I think is a major part of your plenary speaker. You want someone, I always think like Doris Kearns Goodwin was marvelous. She was entertaining. Mm-hmm. But after a while, when you, you'll find certain politicians like James Carville and Mary Madeline, mm-hmm. they kind of have the same shtick wherever you see them. Correct. And you know, you know, how many times does one need to have them do that in a lifetime? So Paul was a great speaker. Again, I I've have done in some people's eyes radical things. For instance, when I first became engaged and started getting invites to the president's dinner, mm-hmm. which 
was a tuxedo affair of all the committee chairs and former presidents, and it was very formal. And I noticed, and someone out there may be saying, I hope he's not mentioning but by name, but you know, the people would sit there looking at their watch, and mm-hmm. as soon as someone stood up to adjust their dress or to just stretch, everybody would stand up and bolt because there was a bunch of other neat stuff to do. Yeah. And I looked at this and figured, you know, this was obviously costing us money. Right. And my wife's a urologist and the urologist had a an event every one of their big meetings where they would have a social gathering for the high rollers and for the, those of us who are peons with the regular tickets. We'd show up in time, you know, a pay bar and peanuts. And they would have one year it was Bob Hope was the opening act for Harry Belafonte, Bill Cosby in his prime, Kenny Rogers, big names at the time. Yeah. And and they made money with this. So I figured, why can't we do that? Yeah. And so I pushed to sort of change the way it worked a bit and initially hit a little pushback. And then there was a wonderful lady who just retired recently, Nancy Ali, who came along. Yeah. We actually met the first time the day before she officially started. I outlined my vision. She mm-hmm. pointed out the technical flaws in what I wanted to do and how to work around that. Mm-hmm. And I said, you've done this before? And she said, yes. And I said, wonderful, run with it, which yeah. she did. I, mean, I always credit her with she made it work. And each year the gala has changed from a dinner to a gala. It has engaged more people. There's been some controversy because we've let pharma buy tables. But the mm-hmm. flip side is pharma would invite people, some of whom would sit there and say, gee, I'd love to get on the every year list. So maybe I'll get engaged on my own. So it would encourage people. And right. it's helped things like, you know, help the Camp Discovery. It's helped the Shade Structure Program. Mm-hmm. It has gone to basically public service activity. So it's created a new source of revenue and it's a good time. So going from a, when can I politely leave event to a, there's no reason to leave because this is fun. In fact, right. a couple of friends who didn't come to mind still remind me that I should have told them that it was really Los Lobos, not a tribute band that we had there. And that was my dear friend and former resident and colleague and current collaborator, Ori Markowitz, who splits the day a week the VA with me and the rest of the time at Sinai. Mm-hmm. And she and her husband, who her husband's in the entertainment industry, they came up with a list of bands. So we had the real Los Lobos for probably far less than it normally costs for just some local bunch of kids playing. So, you know, okay. things like that. It's always fun. For a while, we had a fellowship with industry. Ron Moy and I worked with Umberto Antunes, who was president of Galderma at the time. It was a two-year project to get together a program, which I think went for two or three years, having a Durham spend time with them, basically a clinical research fellowship year, where they learned to see clinical research from the industry side. That's impressive. And, and it let people spend a marvelous year in southern France at facility Galderma had part of it. There are worse ways to spend a year. <laughs> Absolutely. I've read about that. I remember reading about that program. It sounded really pretty terrific. I figured it always pays to float balloons out there. Sometimes one of the things, again, for the young people is realize that you may have the most brilliant idea, but if everybody or at least a majority don't think it's clever, put it on the back burner for a while. Because Mm -hmm. if you push it and persevere too much, you may actually anger those who may become allies in the future. I mean, there were a lot of projects that I would have loved to see happen. I had one, well, I'll tell you a crazy idea, which mm-hmm. is really relevant now, is we do have a shortage of dermatologists. Mm-hmm. We have parts of the country where there's long, long waits still, some areas where there are none for long, long distances. And I'd always thought that you, know, you set up an exchange where you have, let's say you're a rural community or even an inner city community, and if you're willing to put money into a pot, 
you can offer that pot up essentially the, the lowest cost residency that is willing to take that money and then take someone where don't drop your criteria for quality of the applicants, mm-hmm. but find an applicant who's willing to sign a piece of paper that says, I agree to go to this particular locale and I will be paid a salary based on, pick the standard of VA starting salary for Durham, ACGME, assistant professor level. You'll agree to take that salary for three years as a payback. Mm-hmm. And that would help to stay because I suspect most people, once they settle into community, if, if they're happy and doing well, why not stay? Right. That, of course, violates all sorts of rules and things that ACG and others have, and it never went anywhere. And I've linked that more recently to the idea that I look at the number of people who spend a year or two pre-residency doing research, doing science, and then they don't ever really follow through. Right. And, you know, the shortage really is in people who have skills and training. So why not just, you look at the number of applicants, if you get four applicants for every spot, have a payback period. If, if there's four applicants for the spot, the three to one, mm-hmm. you have a three-year payback afterward. If it's 10 to one, have a longer payback. Again, not slavery, a reasonable right. wage, but something where you can go. And again, it could be inner city. It could be NIH fellowship. It could be joining the military, but something that encourages people to do something that they would not have done of their own free will. I know my department, I think we have the largest number of trainees who are closest to the mothership of almost anywhere. Really? You know, we're proud to have well-trained people in our backyard. It's good, but it'd be nice to be able to encourage people to fill the gaps where they're needed and right. why not get them fully trained and then if they're fully trained at Durham, they can always, if they have a real serious research bent, they can do those NIH-funded slots, either NIH or elsewhere, and then keep on the academic path. But lots of ways to make it work, but I, I could never get those through. So I mentioned that maybe someone else will pick up on that at some point. Absolutely. I think that's definitely worth our listeners keeping in mind. I mean, we have similar programs with other specialties, encouraging people to go into primary care. So I think these are all things we need to be thinking about in innovating and helping oh, take yeah. your well, The current head of the RUC committee is a cardiac surgeon named Peter Smith from Duke. And I think he's got an MBA as I think do most of the residents who come out of his thoracic surgery program. I think it's part of the training. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to start to have flexibility, not just looking at med-ped type things or PD Durham fellowships, mm-hmm. but also getting people engaged in the, let's say, the intellectual side of practicing. Mm-hmm. And we need people to be leaders. I mean, we're seeing a consolidation to a great extent, and we probably need you know, homegrown heroes. I think we have Durham's who've done pretty well, who are navigating that landscape well and helping you know, play a role in building of large groups that work. But I think we need more skills like that. Just as for a long time, academic chairs would be people who purely have NIH funding. Now, I would argue that an academic chair probably needs business and people skills more so than research skills. Mm-hmm. They can get the advice for the research skills, have a vice chair to do that, but the chair probably needs to be someone who is basically a people and business manager for the most part. On the idea of resident training, what is just so interesting is that I've always loved when everyone who applies, the, I, was, I wouldn't get in these days because the resumes look great, but they look so alike. Mm-hmm. They've all done a research year. So I like to ignore most of the research when they reach the point of the interview, we talk about hobbies, talk about other things. I think, is this going to be somebody I want to be married to for three years and then cordially separate from, but be proud of? And one of our recent graduates pointed out that he didn't think that he had done well 
and he felt he was rescued by the department secretary who knocked on the door about 25 minutes into a 15-minute interview. And I pointed out that it was just the opposite, that you kept me engaged and entertained. To me, it's the ones where I look at my watch and say, oh, my God, only 17 seconds have passed. I want to get out of this room. Right. That's the person we're not going to rank. Everyone looks good on paper, but the person who's engaging and you're sitting there and saying, you know, I can see this person taking care of people, Mm. being sensitive to the patient's needs, but all the while, you know, thinking about what's going on, having common sense. Those are the things that I try to look for. People who will be good. Everybody who comes through the door, in this case, will be on Zoom this year for interviews. They all look really good on paper. But how many of them are human beings? I mean, it's important. You want nice people. Absolutely. And to that end, in what I've gotten to know in speaking with you over this past hour, you've attacked your career, like you said, with joy and curiosity and an open mind. What would you tell these our younger dermatologists, our young physicians, young attendings, new residents in terms of how to go forth in their career. Do what you think is fun. Also realize that one, two or three years, if an opportunity comes along that looks interesting, even if it wasn't what you thought you wanted to do, follow it. I mean, Mm -hmm. if someone asks if I have a professional regret, I really only have one in that when I my Mohs Fellowship was a decision, do I do a Mohs Fellowship or do I, I was invited to come to Edinburgh for a year or two to put around in a lab with John Hunter's group. And at times I have regrets. I couldn't figure a way to do both because I love Edinburgh, wonderful folks there. And I just wonder, you know, at, at times I say to my wife, maybe take a sabbatical at this point and do that same thing. But do what's interesting and fun. And I would say that be open-minded because you really don't know what you will wind up doing. And many people, Paul Bergstresser, who, you know, I, again, was a strong role model in many ways. Paul talked about he started residency thinking he was going to be a private practice doc. I mean, you just never know what you'll do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just be open, look at all options, ponder things. I mean, to me, you know, I'd much rather have an applicant who eats and breathes dermatology because they love it, as opposed to them making a lifestyle choice without actually having looked into the field. I like eponyms. I like the richness of eponyms, the history behind it. Mm. So to me, when a resident talks about doing an UNA boot, my first question always to the resident is, who was UNA? And if they don't know, I try to educate them. I tell them it's fascinating to understand the people behind the eponyms. There are wonderful stories there. And those stories branch into the history of the world in that some people were, you know, the wrong side of the equation in various world wars. Too much to get into on this, but there's just so much that's so rich out there. It's a wonderful tapestry and just makes it all the more enjoyable to understand the background behind it. Dr. Siegel, you couldn't have put it better in terms of what this project is about and what this conversation has really achieved, because that really is the root of things. There's so much beauty and interest deeper than the resumes, the textbooks. We are blessed to be in a specialty that we enjoy doing. We enjoy taking care of patients. One of my surgical mentors, Ron Davis, used to say that Being a surgeon was in many ways like being a barber. You're Mm -hmm. happy to see people when they come in and you talk to them the whole time you're providing service. I mean, it's, we have fun. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I think that I was very fortunate to spend the great part of my professional career having a good time with a knife in hand. I mean, I just love what I do. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I know people are going to really love hearing from you, hearing these stories, things that you just can't get without sitting down. So I really appreciate it.
Awesome. Thank you for your time today, Julie. To help us enhance future Titans of Dermatology episodes, please visit the description section of this podcast to access a short survey. We greatly appreciate your feedback. We hope you've enjoyed this edition of Dialogues in Dermatology. This is Lauren Council, your Editor-in-Chief. For more podcasts, including bonus issues, check us out online at the website of the American Academy of Dermatology or through the Dialogues in Dermatology app. You can now also sync your subscription to your favorite podcast app. New podcasts are released each week in addition to our monthly JAD podcast. We hope you enjoyed these new options for listening to Dialogues and the increased content for your listening pleasure. Thank you.